The last six chapters go after the heart. They help us encounter Jesus by telling us what he came to do. And the very beginning of that last section, that final section, is right here in today's passage. What we're going to be seeing in these verses is that you can't know Jesus unless you know him as king. He can't come into your life. He can't change your life. He can't transform your life unless you understand him as your king. You won't even begin to understand who he is unless you understand him as king. So let's dive right in and see what this passage has to say to us. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany of a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it you will find a colt or a donkey tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners did ask them, why are you untying the colt? They simply replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people started spreading their cloaks out on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Three things I want to draw out of this passage. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus is the true king. Second, I want you to see that Jesus is the weak or Jesus is the humble king. And then third, I want to try and show you how he can be your king. First of all then, Jesus is the true king. Verse 38, just read it, the crowd start praising God, much as we've just been praising God with that first song. They shout out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this is a direct quotation taken from the pages of the Old Testament. The crowds are quoting Psalm 118 verse 26. And if you were to flick back in your Bibles to that passage, you'll see that this was the proclamation, this was the praise, this was the acclaim given to the anticipated Messiah, the promised King that the Jews, the people of Israel, were very much looking forward to. He would be in David's line, and he would come and he would put everything right. And so the crowds here aren't merely proclaiming Jesus to be a king, they're declaring that he is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one who comes to be their savior, and not just their savior, but the savior of the whole world. Now, 
Although it's helpful to understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament, it also helps to see that this idea of a great saviour riding in, coming to the rescue, is actually a powerful theme in all the great traditions, all the great stories down through history. In other words, this isn't just a Jewish hope. It's a hope that I believe is in all of us. It's a human hope. You can trace it, not just in ancient stories, ancient legends, but in modern fantasy traditions. The idea of a Messiah, a hero who returns and saves everyone and dramatically puts everything right. Wherever you look, it's all over the place. There, it's there in the ancient legends of King Arthur, right through to the modern day comic book heroes like Batman and Spider-Man and Wolverine and Captain America probably even Ant-Man. It's this, kind of, it's it's this deep-rooted human hope. But let's face it, it hasn't always served us well. History's littered with people who were given power by the people in the hope that they would save them, rescue them, do good to them, but the power was abused, it was corrupted, it turned out to be an absolute and utter disaster. Look at people in history like Mussolini or Hitler. Every generation has its own version. And I think it's partly because of those kinds of stories, as well as the simple fact that the history of human kings is this just abysmal history of tyranny and failure. We've kind of gone off the idea of having an all-powerful monarchy ruling over us. It's like everybody nowadays has the right to decide how they want to live. We, we don't want a ruler over us. We don't want someone telling us what to do or how we're to live. And yet, despite the fact we say that, we still have the tendency, don't we, to honour people as though they were kings and queens. We honour millionaires and athletes and celebrities, stars in the music industry and on the big screen. C.S. Lewis once put it, you deny people food, inevitably they'll gobble poison. So what happens if you starve someone? So I've been told I've never actually starved anyone, unless you kind of think, well, what kind of person's in front of us right now? Haven't tried this? I'm reliably informed. That's what happens if you try and starve someone, de- deprive them of the real deal. And even though their mind tells them it's going to be harmful, they will still over time grab harmful stuff to eat out of desperation because of this deep-rooted hunger inside them. I think what C.S. Lewis is saying is you can tell yourself you don't need a king, but deep down you do spiritually, you do. And so if you're deprived of the real thing, you'll automatically go hunting for a replacement. So you might say, I don't need or I don't want anyone in authority over me. I'm in control of my life. I'm in charge of my destiny. No one tells me what to do. The simple fact of the matter is you're not in charge. And I'll tell you why. You have to live for something. Something's got to give you purpose in life. Something's got to give you a sense of significance. That there's got to be something or someone you're looking to that gives you a sense of meaning or value. It's like you've got to live for something. And whatever that something is, it doesn't serve you. You serve it. Ultimately, you're not in control. 
It has authority over your life. It controls you. It tells you what to do. Listen, if you want meaning in life, you've got to live for something. And whatever that something is, eventually you have to crown it. You have to give it control or authority over you. If you're living for your career, for example, it's how you know you're a successful person. That's what defines you. That's where you get your value. Then that is in control. It is driving you. And if something goes wrong or threatens your career, then you kind of melt down. Why? Because it's punishing you for failing it. It's a master. It's lord over you. It's controlling you. It's the same with relationships. If you're living for your children, over time they become your master. Some of you know this. If everything hinges on them being happy, then you're not your own anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You're a slave to their routine, their desires, their wishes. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever you're living for, it doesn't serve you. You, over time, serve it. But I think it's also possible that the reason we're so fascinated with these stories of kings and messianic heroes and why we keep creating these new blockbusters that tell of more powerful figures and superheroes who accomplish even more extraordinary things, I think the reason for that is there's a memory trace in us. You see, the Bible tells us that before the breaking of the world, the human race stood in the presence of a true king, a king of absolute glory and splendor. And his justice and his power and wisdom and his compassion and beauty and nobility, they were like nothing else. They were incomparable. And we were made for relationship with this king. But we lost it. Because we said we're going to be our own saviour. We don't need, we don't want someone telling us what to do. We're, we're going to be our own Lord, our own master. And the Bible unpacks this story that as humankind was thrown out from the Garden of Eden, as we lost that king, there was a prophecy. You, you can find it back in the very beginning in Genesis 3 verse 15. And it was ever so slightly cryptic, but basically the prophecy was this, that though the serpent Satan had led Adam and Eve into sin, and though evil had entered the world and would increase and increase and increase, and though everything would break down because we were supposed to stay in the presence of that true king and to serve him and to enjoy intimacy and relationship with him, and everything would have been perfect. But as soon as we became our own king, everything in the world started breaking down. And in the midst of all of this happening, there was this prophecy, there was this promise, and it said this, one day somebody will come and he will trample on the serpent 
And though this person would be wounded, bruised in the process, he will ultimately be victorious. He will deal with the great problem of evil and suffering that you see in the world, and he will triumph once and for all. He will be victorious. And every page of the Bible is full of the whisper and the rumor that this king will come again. And somewhere deep down inside us, it's in us. We have this hope in us. It shows up in the legends, the stories of the world. It shows up in our fantasy fiction, our comic book heroes. It shows up most clearly in the Old Testament prophecies. And this is him. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes. Jesus is the promised king, the Messiah who has come to save the world. That's the first point. That's what we were singing about earlier on. Jesus is the true king. We're all looking for a king. We can't help it. We're all crowning something, giving authority to something in our lives. But this is the one we were meant for. That's the first point. Second point deals with the panic that some of you are already beginning to feel around this. It's like we're petrified that we're going to lose control of our lives. And that's why it's a struggle to get anyone to commit to sign up in advance for a life group or to come to an event until just after it starts. We want to keep all of our options open. I mean, who knows? Maybe something better will come up at the last moment, and I don't want to miss that, so I need to stay in charge of my life. It's like if I sign up in advance, suddenly I've lost a little bit of control. We're absolutely petrified about losing control. So the moment we move beyond Jesus being this warm, fuzzy being that comes into our life, but that he's actually the king and you must give him authority, then everybody starts to panic ever so slightly. And so here's what I'd like you to consider. Number one, which I've already said, really, you're not actually in control of your life. Control is an illusion. You're already oppressed. You're already driven. You're already serving something. Ultimately, you're not in control of your life. The the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The, The person who craves acceptance from others ends up being controlled by the people they're trying to please. You don't control yourself. You're controlled by whatever is Lord of your life. So first of all, whether you admit it or not, you are not in control right now. And second, I'll go so far as to say that so many of your problems and your frustrations and your disappointments come from the things that you have erroneously crowned in your life. It's like they're oppressing you. For example, if you're living for your career or if you're living to fulfill the expectations of your parents or if you're trying to prove yourself through your appearance, all the things that 
you feel wrong with you, flow from the fact that you're serving someone or something that is not a true king. It's not ultimately what you were made to serve. So many of your problems are coming from that. You say, well, I want to change my life. I want things to be different, but I don't want to lose control. To which I'd say, you've already lost control. And the only way to change your life is to get the true king. Because he's the only king who's not only true, but he won't oppress you. Why not? Because he's the weak king. He's the humble king. He's the lowly king. It's the second thing we see in this passage. In each of the accounts of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, all the gospel writers give a whole lot of detail about the getting of the donkey. It says here uh, in verse 30, go to the village ahead of you. Uh, As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them as they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I mean, why on earth this detail? I mean, there are many more exciting stories to be told in the Gospels. Why is Jesus going to all this trouble? I think one reason is because Zechariah 9 in the Old Testament says that the Messiah, the promised king, will come like that. Verse 9 of Zechariah 9, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So first of all, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, which is another whole sermon altogether, which I'm sure we'll preach another time. It's like Jesus cared so much about Scripture, he made sure that every single part of his life submitted to what the Scriptures taught. I think what's more important here is to see the paradox of this scene. This isn't the way a king would enter a city. No triumphant, victorious king rides in on a donkey. I mean, kings ride on war horses. They have large limousines with armed guards all around them. Jesus is deliberately riding on a donkey. I just want to imagine what must have been going through the mind of the disciples here. Jesus tells them he's going to ride into Jerusalem in triumph. They're thinking, finally, at long last, finally you're getting with the program. Jesus goes, so if you could just go and fetch me a donkey. They're thinking, Jesus, you need some help here. You're going to be a laughing stock. We need to hire an image consultant for you. You've lost control of your message. You know what Jesus is going to say? Now, I'm absolutely in control of my message. That is precisely why I'm riding in like this. I don't come with the power that the world expects the Messiah to come with. I'm not like all those other legends or superheroes. I don't come to bring judgment. I come to bear judgment. I come to go to the cross in weakness and meekness and suffering. Why? Because if I rode in on a war horse, killing a bunch of Romans as I came, ultimately all I'd have been able to bring was a limited amount of freedom to just a few people 
for just a few years. But I'm coming to bring the divine wrath on human sin that the whole human race deserves because of its willful rebellion against God. And I'm going to carry the divine wrath against human sin as I die on the cross so that you can be forgiven and so that one day the whole world can be mended and put right so that evil and death and suffering can be destroyed forever. Listen, because he's a weak king, you can trust him. He won't oppress you. See, we're afraid of losing control. We, We want Jesus to come in and help us, but we don't want him taking over. We don't want him interfering. We don't want him saying, well, you shouldn't be doing that thing. I want to keep doing that thing. Don't him taking over, but you need to see you've already let something or someone else take over. You've already lost authority. And Jesus is the only king who will not oppress you. Look, your career, if that's what you're living for, and you fail in your career, then you'll end up just being down on yourself. Why? Because your career will keep punishing you. Because ultimately, it cannot save you. It cannot die for your sins. It's the same if you live for your children, or for a cause, or for an image, or for a relationship, or for popularity. Whatever you live for, it will drive you to destruction. But Jesus is the one king. Jesus is the only king that you can live for, you can give your life for, and not be crushed, and not be damaged. He's the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. In fact, the more we yield to Him, the more we give to Him, the more we submit to Him, the more we give Him control, the more He frees us to be who we really are. We were created, we were made, we were designed, we were wired to be in his presence. Like a fish is designed to be in water, take it out of the water, it will die. We were made for the water of relationship with the one true king. We were made for the water of serving him and living for him, not merely just believing in him and going to a church meeting once a week and then serving something else the other six days a week, but serving him, living for him as the supreme authority in your life. And when you do that, it's like getting back in the water. There's life. Listen, you were made for him, that things become as they really should under his hand, under his control, under his authority. I'm telling you, you can trust him. You need to trust him. So first of all, he's the true king. Second, he's the weak king. He's the humble king. So you can trust him. Thirdly and finally, How then can you make him your king? Three things from this text. I said finally, but three more points. You have to worship him, you have to obey him, and you have to expect great things 
from him. You have to worship him, you have to obey him, you have to expect great things from him, or you're not treating him as a king. First of all, you have to worship him. You see right here in verse 37, Jesus' kingship leads to people joyfully praising God. Archbishop William Temple, many, many years ago, he said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. I think what he meant by that was, when you have nothing else you have to think about, you might think, well, the luxury would be a fine thing. Well, imagine, nothing else you have to think about. Where does your mind go? Where does your mind wander? Because that's what you serve. Look, if you lose a job, if you lose a relationship that you care deeply about, and yet you spend your time daydreaming about the beauty and glory of Jesus, you know how to pray, you know how to meditate and feed yourself with his words. You know how to worship him and sing his praise, not just in a meeting like this, but when you're by yourself. Your, your imagination has been captured. You, you don't just believe in him in some abstract way. No, you worship him. Then you can lose that career. Then you can lose that relationship you care deeply about. And yet, I'm not telling you it won't be tough. It will be tough. It will hurt. It will be painful. But it won't be the end of the world. But if you're always daydreaming about your career and how it's going to go, or your relationship and how everything's going to be right because you've met Mr. Right or Miss Right, and you lose that, that's all it is. That's all there is. Then it's all over. Why? because you've crowned that. You've let your imagination become captured by that. And so you're worshipping and adoring that. And as a result, if you lose that, it will punish you badly. If you want to treat Jesus as the king, you need to learn how to worship him, not just believe in him. Let your imagination be captured by him. Spend time with him. Feed, fuel your love, your experience of him. That's the first thing. Second, if you want to make Jesus your king, then you do have to obey him. Notice what it says in verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found the colt just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? They replied, the Lord needs it. That's all. No further explanation. That's a great picture of obedience. I still remember as a child saying to my dad that I'd be happy to obey if he just sat down and explained to me why. His response, here's why. You're 10 years old, I'm 38. I think what he meant, I've tried that one myself, it works great. Parents, watch and learn. What he meant was, kids prepare to be frustrated. What he meant was, if you, what he meant was, if you only obey me because you understand why I'm telling you to do this, that's not obedience. That's merely agreement. If Jesus is going to be your king, then you have to obey him unconditionally, even when it doesn't make any sense to you, even when you'd rather do something different or else he's not your king. He's just someone you're agreeing with when it suits you. He's like a consultant, but not a king. 
So you need to obey him. Third, if you want to make Jesus your king, then you have to expect great things from him. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Romans 8 tells us, when humanity turned away from the true king, the world broke. And as beautiful as the world is right now, stunning as it is, is a mere shadow of what it will be like when the true king returns. And so all creation is like on tiptoe, waiting for its king to return and make it right. In a passage a bit reminiscent of this one in Luke 19, Isaiah 55 describes how the mountains and hills will burst into song before him and all the trees of the field will clap their hands and sing for joy before the Lord for he comes to rule the world. This is what's going to happen when the king comes back fully. Now, if you'll make Jesus your king today, you're going to get a foretaste of what's to come. But you're not going to get it all yet. That There is still sickness in the world. And so from time to time, you will still get sick. There's still suffering in the world. And so from time to time, there'll still be suffering in your life. But ultimately, there's still death in the world. And so you're still going to die. But I'm telling you, you can still expect great things because Jesus is the king of all things. And if he is the king of all things and he is the king of your life, then you can expect your life to be aligned with where things are heading. The king of the whole universe is your savior and your friend. And he loves you. And he wants to bless you in every way that's not bad for you. I think right now, God is wanting to challenge you to raise your expectations of him and what he is able to do in and through your life. The only reason that you are unwilling to allow him to be king, lord over your life is because your expectations of him are way, way, way too small. If you got your expectations in line with reality, if you expect him to do what he is able to do, what he wants to do, what he desires to do in your life, it would be no problem at all. You would submit to him completely. God's wanting you to raise your expectation levels of him. As John Newton's great hymn puts it, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power as such, none can ever ask too much. Listen, if you have low expectations, then you're not treating him as the king. If you don't obey him unconditionally, you're not treating him as the king. If you don't let him capture your imagination and grow in your worship of him, you're not treating him as the king. So drawing all of this together, in Matthew 11, Jesus says this famous passage. He invites us, he says, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's wonderful, isn't it? I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'll give you rest. And then he says what? It says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Which means you have to be tethered to him. You have to take his will onto your life. You have to go where he's going. You have to go where he is taking you. He says, you have to obey me. He's saying, look, at the end of the day, I cannot protect you. I cannot guide you. I cannot give you the rest you so desire. I cannot be your shepherd. I cannot be your lover. I can't do all these things unless you make me your king, unless you take my yoke upon you. That's who I am. I'm the king. You can't say, Jesus, come in and provide for me. Jesus, come in and be my caregiver, but stay out as my Lord. He's both. I think that's why the Pharisees were so upset. They say, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Why do they say that? Because I think Jesus was forcing everybody's hand. By coming in that publicly, he was forcing a response. He was saying, crown me or kill me. And tragically, just a week later, that's what they did. They killed him. But he was forcing the issue. He was forcing their hands. He was saying, I will be in your life as the king or I will not be in your life at all. And I believe he'd say the same to us today. Crown me or kill me. There is no middle ground. So which way will you go? I think some of you you need to realign your priorities. Now don't hear me wrong, there's nothing wrong with pursuing a career or pursuing a relationship. Nothing wrong with having kids or a cause that you're committed to. But if that thing is in control, if that thing is Lord over your life, you need to realign your priorities. Others of you, you can't do what I'm asking you to do. And the reason you can't do it, the reason you're unwilling to do it is because ultimately you don't know Jesus well enough. And so my appeal to you would be to get to know him better. At least put this to the test. Because if what I'm saying is true, if it's true, then why would you want to miss out on that? And so won't you push into Jesus? Won't you get to know him more for yourself? And see that he is the humble king who you can give control over and find true, real life.